Well, happy birthday, Rockbrook. Many of you don't even know it, but you're 19 years old today. It was 19 years ago, Memorial Day weekend, we held our first service in the shelter house, the Raymore Park. We had 92 people show up. Anybody here in this service that was there at that very first service? Put your hand way up if you're in here. A couple way in the back, had several last night. Those, those are our original dream team. If it weren't for the sacrifice of those people, this church wouldn't be here today. And I'm thrilled Andy's leading worship this weekend because Andy and Linda, they were on our original worship team, rained on us over there. We were, they were standing in puddles playing electric guitars. I thought we were going to kill everybody the first day, but uh, we didn't. And uh, we've had a great time ever since. Uh, you know, over the years, we've seen a lot of life change. We've seen a lot of spiritual growth in people. Uh, Rockbrook has baptized over 802 people uh, in the last uh, 19 years. So uh, 802 people, that's great. And we've uh, seen, uh, yeah, that's worth clapping for. That's great. And we're still seeing life change. And we're still seeing things happen. And frankly, I believe the best is yet to come. And a lot of people say that, but I really believe that. I think we're just, as a church, we're just starting to catch our stride. And I'm going to be talking about that to our current Dream Team on June 17th. Uh, if you're part of the Dream Team, mark your calendars, get that on your radar. We're going to have a great night together and, and talk about that. Uh, this year, we've seen several new believers in Jesus Christ, and we've had dozens of new members that have come on this year, and so Ryland and I decided that we wanted to, to preach through our doctrinal statement. Uh, we wanted to explain the essential beliefs that a follower of Jesus Christ needs to understand and believe. And so this sermon series, it's the list just comes right out of our doctrinal statement. And I, I think it's fitting that our birthday falls right in the middle of this series, because it, it's the foundational truth that holds us together as, as a church family. And so the, over the last few weeks, we've talked about the, the Bible, uh, about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and today we come to the doctrine of humankind. And so for our birthday, instead of cake and ice cream and balloons, I'm going to talk to you about total depravity. And, uh, you know, that seems a little funny, but, you know, we've always wanted to create a place, create a church where a church could be fun and fulfilling and enjoyable, but we are not afraid to talk about the hard things. Because it's been my desire that our joy would not be a surface joy or a trite joy, but it would be a joy that flows out of roots that go deep into the righteous truth of God and His Word. Because that's where real joy is found. So here's our statement on humankind from our doctrinal statement. It says, we believe that humans in their natural state are totally depraved and in need of a divine redeemer. It's one sentence long, but it's got some powerful phrases in there. And for you to understand this, I really need to lay some groundwork for you. And that's why this doctrinal statement follows all the other doctrinal statements about the Bible, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Because understanding doesn't begin with you. The universe does not revolve around you. That's why the opening line in the Bible is, in the beginning, God. That's why the first sentence in the purpose-driven life is, it's not about you. Because it doesn't start with you, it doesn't end with you, it's not about you. It starts with God. It ends with God. It is all about God. The Bible cannot be understood. Life cannot be understood without an understanding of creation. The, the, the record of events from Adam and Eve in Genesis through the history of Israel in the Old Testament. 
the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The rise of the church in the book of Acts and the epistles. The, the second coming of Christ predicted in Revelation. The, the consummation of all things in a new heaven and a new earth. None of that makes sense. Apart from the truth that God, through Christ, created everything and he sustains everything. It is God who who disperses the nations all over the face of the earth. It's God who determines their allotted periods and their boundaries. It's God who lifts up one king and deposes another. It is God who chose a people, the Jews, and made an irrevocable promise to them for a land and a great posterity. It is God who sends famine and a bountiful harvest. It's God who gives life and takes life away. It is God who sent his son into the world, nailed him to a cross according to his plan and foreknowledge. It's God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who builds his church. And it's God through Christ who will one day come in unimaginable splendor to save believers and to judge unbelievers. Why? So that God's glory will fill the universe like water fills the sea. It's all about God. Biblical history is the record of a God who acts like an owner. A God who assumes absolute rights over the world, over nations, over you and me. A God who has a purpose and a plan for the world, for you. And a God whose purpose will not be thwarted. Life makes no sense without the doctrine of creation. That's why the enemy works so hard to tout evolution. Because if he can tout evolution, he can dethrone God and then chaos reigns, which is what he's all about. Because none of this makes sense apart from a creator. That's why we laid out the foundation of God's glory and Christ creating and redeeming work and the power and presence of the Spirit earlier in this series. Because if we're going to understand life, if we're going to understand humankind, we've got to understand the Trinity. But there's another doctrine, and that's the doctrine of total depravity. And if you don't understand the doctrine of total depravity... God is not going to make sense. The world is not going to make sense. In fact, your life will frustrate you. Here's the doctrine of total depravity. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, all people everywhere have an innate depravity of heart which leads us to sin as soon as we are able to sin. And this universal condition of mankind comes from the disobedience of Adam and God's judgment upon it. History is clear that God is the creator of the world, and he has the right and the power to use everything in creation for his glory, including you and me. History is also clear that that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when those two truths are brought together, what emerges is the gospel, the history of God's redemption His redeeming work through Jesus Christ in us. And so the reality of my sin makes redemption necessary. uh, God's power makes redemption possible 
even certain. The reality of my sin makes it necessary. The reality of God's power makes it possible. The Bible says we've all dishonored our Creator with our sin. We stand under eternal condemnation. The wages of sin is death unless we find forgiveness in Christ our Redeemer. Now, if you come to understand the origin, the extent, the nature, and the consequences of sin, it not only helps make sense out of history, out of, out of current life, but more importantly, it causes me to urgently pursue Christ, to pursue the holiness that he calls me to. The, the, the doctrine of total depravity can be summed up with nobody's perfect. Maybe you've heard somebody make that comment, nobody's perfect. Maybe you've said that yourself, well, nobody's perfect. You know, we, we recognize that fact. Everybody makes mistakes, everybody sins. And sometimes people, after they get caught in a sin or make a mistake, their defense is, well, nobody's perfect. You ever heard it with that tone? Well, nobody's perfect. The fact that nobody is perfect doesn't let you off the hook. The fact that nobody is perfect simply condemns us all. There are five things that I want you to see about sin in the Bible. Number one, on your notes, on the screen. All people are under the power of sin. The Bible clearly proclaims that every person is a sinner. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 143.2, for no man living is righteous before you. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there is an intrinsic flaw in human character. It is no fluke that the statistical probability of a person sinning is 100%. And the only exception to that is Jesus Christ. We sin because our nature is corrupt. Our hearts are depraved. But here's what you need to understand. Please, please understand this. Our tendency towards sin doesn't just make us bad. Someone might say, well, sin makes me bad. I don't care. I like being bad. But that's not what it does. Our tendency towards sin doesn't just make us bad. Our tendency towards sin makes us dead. Spiritually dead. And that spiritual death eventually leads to physical death. The problem isn't that we're bad and we need to do good things. The problem is we are dead and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't make ourselves come alive. We're all sinners and the reward, the wages of sin is a dead, dormant soul. And none of us have the power to get alive. That's one of the side effects of being dead. You can't do anything If you were just bad, God could have sent you a list of ten things to do to get better. If you were just bad, God could have sent a list of step-by-step instructions to get you back on track. If you were just bad, God could have said, here, follow these laws to live by. But the law that God gave us didn't make us good. That wasn't even the purpose of the law. The Bible tells us that the purpose of the law was not to make us good. The purpose of the law was to demonstrate to us that we are dead. We're dead. There's nothing we can do. We don't have the spiritual life within us to keep the law. 
Rylan and I were talking about this, and he said, you know Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's where all the law is in the Bible? He says, I can't even read it, with it let alone keep it. I mean, that's how desperate we are. And so God sent Jesus Christ for you. Because just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, you have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. God sent Jesus to take your place, to take your sin, to take your shame, to suffer death for you. So that the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that same power of God can raise you from the dead. We've got to recognize that we're all... Here's, here's the reality. We, we are in the morgue, not in the doghouse. Okay? We're in the morgue, not the doghouse. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says, apart from Christ, all people are dead through trespasses and sins. They are sons of disobedience. Among these we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. Every one of us has a depraved heart, a natural corruption of our will. Jeremiah meant everybody. He meant everybody when he said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? And it wasn't poetic overstatement when David grieved over his own sinfulness and he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not casting dispersions on his mother. He's saying that from the moment of conception he was tainted by sin. The heart of every man, every woman, every child is desperately corrupt. And that's the first thing that we've got to see about sin. What a heartbreaking, pride-shattering revelation that is. And it leads to the inevitable question of, where did all this sin and depravity come from? What is the origin of sin in the world? How in the world did we get this way? And the Bible gives us an answer in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1 through 3, and in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5. In Genesis, when God finished creating man and woman in his own image, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God made man good. God didn't make a depraved man. And Genesis 2 tells us that God provided man everything he needed to make his life rich and happy. God gave bountifully to his creature, not begrudgingly. God made a good man and a good woman, put him in a good garden on a good earth. How then did man become depraved and the world become so miserable? Well, in Genesis 3, there is a moment of catastrophic disobedience. Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their innocence vanished. They were overcome with shame. They realized they were naked. The first lovers began blaming each other. God pronounced his curses on them. God pronounced curses on the earth. Their first child murdered his brother. 
Genesis 5 describes how from that day forward the descendants of Adam died. A very common phrase in Genesis 5 is so-and-so was born, he lived this many years, and then he died. So-and-so was born, he lived this many years, and then he died. And through that whole chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Physical death came into the world because of Adam's disobedience. Wickedness increased in the world until God steps in with the flood, wipes out all of mankind except for Noah and his family. That's the story of the origin of sin that's laid out for us in the Old Testament. And Genesis tells us the story, but it doesn't tell us how or why. New Testament, Romans 5, 12 through 21. That the Apostle Paul gives the divinely inspired explanation of what happened in Genesis. Fairly long, very technical passage of Scripture. It is rich in meaning. And today I just want to pull out for you the statements that deal with the origin of sin. Verse 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. Verse 15, Many died through one man's trespass, his disobedience in eating the forbidden fruit. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. It brought spiritual death, it brought a curse upon the earth, and it brought eventual physical death for everybody. Condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. It was passed from Adam to everybody who followed. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The teaching is clear. The universality of sin in the world comes from the fall of our first parents into disobedience. There are a couple of mysteries surrounding this. One is, is that even before the fall of Adam and Eve, we encounter an evil, lying tempter in the Garden of Eden. Yet not a word is given about where the serpent comes from. Now in the New Testament, in Revelation 12:9, we're, we're told that that tempter is Satan. But we're not told anything about the actual first sin of the universe and how it occurred. I mean, it's a mystery to me why Satan, an angelic being in the presence of God, would shift his focus off glorifying God and turn the focus onto trying to glorify himself. But the ultimate origin of sin, the very first sin, the, the, the story of that's not given to us. The second mystery is how the sin of Adam is transmitted to, to generation to generation. We're simply told that it is. We're not told how it is. We're not told the biology or the mechanics or the, uh, the genetics of how that happens. The Bible just assumes that we will trust the justice of God to establish a connection between Adam's sin and every following generation. A couple of things to notice here. One is, is God did not add to man an element of evil when Adam fell. The depravity of the human heart is not due to an addition of evil. It's actually due to a removal, to a subtraction. What happened in the fall is that God took from man the spiritual life that enabled man to relate appropriately with God and with one another and with the rest of creation. 
That's why God said, don't do this or you will die. Because it's when that spiritual life is removed from man, now man's just a natural being. He's in his natural state. And as such, his desires go after the things of the world. Pleasure, power, esteem, status, self, the flesh. God didn't add evil desires. He simply removed the spiritual life that left us in a natural state. And we just imploded in on ourselves. So all people come into the world with this depraved heart because God established a unity between Adam and his descendants all the way down to your parents, to you and me, to our kids, to our grandkids. That fatal flaw is passed from generation to generation. Third thing I want you to see. And that's the essence of the nature of sin. If we say the first sin was simply disobedience, we're, we're overlooking something very important. The, the forbidden tree was given a name because it stood for something. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, refers to the prerogative to determine for oneself what is good, what is evil, what is helpful, what is harmful. And what God was forbidding wasn't just a, a, an arbitrary fruit from an arbitrary tree. It's what that fruit symbolized. Look at this. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil meant to reject God as an all-wise, all-caring Father who knows what is good for us. And instead, to put ourselves in His place. What God was forbidding Adam to do was to exchange roles with him. God is saying, Adam, don't dethrone me. Adam, don't try to take my place. And when the tempter came to Eve, he lied to her and told her, there won't be any consequence of this. He says, you will not die. That's a blatant lie. But he knows, he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3.22, God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What that means is man has chosen the way of the prodigal son. He doesn't want to stay under his father's authority. He wants to decide for himself what's good and bad. The essence of the fall is our desire to determine for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And the other side of the coin is, is to substitute ourselves for God. So we get the flickering glory, the, the puny sense of power that comes from self-reliance, self-confidence, self-determination. But all our sin flows from our inborn unwillingness to trust our Heavenly Father, to decide what's good for us and what's bad for us. That's why the first sermon in this series was who determines what's right and wrong because that's the core issue. That's the core issue we're seeing in most issues in our society today. Who's going to determine what's right and wrong? God or me? Fourth thing, what are the consequences of sin? I mean, sin has brought so much misery into human lives and sin causes those who, who never repent to be punished in hell forever. There are three human relationships that were corrupted in the fall. First is, is the relationship to ourselves was corrupted. 
Our image of ourselves was corrupted. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Rebellion against God in the human heart is so foreign to the way God wired us up that when we rebel against God, we must constantly put on airs, put on masks, put on makeup, put on clothes, put up facades to try and convince ourselves that we're not really a naked, helpless child separated from our Father Creator. It it corrupted our image of how we see ourselves. Second, the relationship with God was ruined. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God, and men and women have been running and hiding from God ever since. A youth who says to his father, I don't want your advice, I don't want your authority, I don't want your help, cannot stand to be in the presence of that father. We are homeless fugitives, always on the run. Until we give it up and come home to God. Third, our relationships with other people have been ruined. God asked Adam, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. See what's happened at that point? They're turning on each other. After the fall, Adam and he turned on each other to the point where Adam, the tender-hearted, chivalrous husband that he is, says to God, if anybody deserves to die, it's her! Kill her! When the heart is in rebellion against God, it gets focused on self-justification, self-protection, and everybody else becomes patsies and scapegoats. And you see it in relationships all the time. Our relationships with ourselves, with God, with other people are corrupted in the fall. And and the misery that we experience is huge because of it. But the ultimate consequence of depravity is punishment and exclusion. 2 Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus will one day be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Glorification and joy for those who've obeyed the gospel punishment and exclusion for those who've disobeyed the gospel. Significant consequences to our sin. So number five, what's the remedy? What's the remedy for sin? The whole reason I I, I would take an entire message to explain this doctrine to you is because the person who realizes their condition apart from Jesus Christ that person realizes what a gift they've been given in him. And it changes the way they live. It changes the way they worship. Too many people think that that, that they can be good enough to save themselves. There's a term for that. It's called self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is when I think, well, I can be good enough to save myself, but, you know, Jesus wants to do it, so I'll let him get the credit. But I could really do it apart from him. 
Jesus doesn't just get the credit. There's no room for self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. We are dead without him. Dead. And if we don't know that our diagnosis is terminal, we're not going to accept the doctor's remedy. Jesus said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And thanks to Adam, that's all of us. That's all of us. But the remedy, the remedy is this. Out of his great love for us, God sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for our sins and to rise again so that if we will yield our lives to him in faith, follow him in obedience, we can have peace for our conscience, we can have purpose for our life, we can have hope for eternity. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One day on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus entered a village and he was met by ten lepers. And in that day, leprosy was a death sentence. You were just ostracized from society and you were just left to fend for yourself until you died from the disease. And so these lepers stood at a distance and they cried out to Jesus saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. Because if by chance you were ever healed from leprosy, and sometimes it happened, the way you were declared healed is you would show up at the temple and the priest would examine you and determine if you were healed or not. And so these ten guys start off to go to the temple to get checked out because Jesus told them to. And as they walk to the temple, as they're obedient in their faith, suddenly one of them realizes, we're healed. And he turns around and he runs back and he falls on his face in front of Jesus and he begins to worship him. And Jesus looks down at this man and he says, we're not ten lepers cleaned. Where are the other nine? Did only one come back to praise God for what he's done? When you understand your depravity, you understand what a great work God has done on your behalf, and it turns you into a worshiper. And so the question that I want to leave with you today is what kind of leper are you? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and for the truth that we find from it. God, without a correct diagnosis, there's no hope of healing. So God, I would pray you'd help each of us to quit fooling ourselves in regards to our sin and our depravity and recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, we're dead in trespasses and sin. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, my prayer for you would be that in this moment you would just cry out to him and say, Jesus, Master, show mercy on me. And God himself has promised that if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can be given that new, abundant, eternal life that he offers us. We can, we can go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And my prayer would be that you would find that life in this moment. And maybe you're here today and you've been a believer. You've been a believer for years. But your defense is in, well, nobody's perfect. 
And rather than addressing and dealing with your sin, rather than forsaking your sin, you sought to defend it and hold on to it. And under the, the guise and folly of self-righteousness, you thought, you know, I'm just not that bad. My prayer for you today is that you'll realize you're not just bad, buddy, you're dead. And apart from Jesus Christ, the only thing in your future is punishment and exclusion. But God offers us salvation. He offers us life through Jesus Christ, his son. God, I pray we would turn our hearts, turn our minds, turn our focus, our attention, the very purpose of our life toward your son, our savior, whom we desperately need so much. And that we would give him the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.